to the Britpop Show. Sponsored by Creation Day Festival. Playing the best and the rest of Britpop. Welcome to the shambolic mess that is the Britpop Show. And once again, we, we have someone we can blame for the music this week. It's not just me. We have Billy Reeves. Who is Billy Reeves? Billy Reeves is the man who wrote this for the audience. A pessimist is never disappointed. Pessimist is never disappointed. And guess who we have in the studio? We have Billy Reeves, who wrote that song. Billy, welcome to the studio. Very kind of you to have me. The um the winner of the inaugural and to this day only 
Channel 4 Alternative Eurovision Song Contest. And no one can ever take that off me. And that was that song, was it? It was that song, our best known song. And uh, it was at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, live on Channel 4. 12 groups were supposed to turn up and only five did. The, the jury, I think, was um, Jamie Theakston, remember him? I remember him, yeah. Jazzy B and someone else that I can't remember. So it was a, it was a jury vote. Um, the, the, the auditorium was half empty with extremely drunk indie kids because I think it had been sponsored by some lager brand. You know, it was all, you know, Britpop was, era was all lager brands and big boots, weren't it? Yeah. DMs and that. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was an absolute farce. But we won it for Britain. Well, and you can only, only five, but you can only compete against who turned up, can't you? <laughs> no, that's right. You can only beat, to use a football term, you can only beat what's in front of well, you. Exactly. But yeah, right. I, what, a, <laughs> what an honour. <laughs> but um, so tell us a little bit about, I mean, you're obviously best known for the audience. Tell us a bit about how that came about. There was, um, I used to work for a small record company called Fire Records, which is still going and is really cool uh, these days. So I was the press guy, So, but I did it in a very old-fashioned way because I started in about 92, I think it was 92, 93, uh, when CDs were first starting. They didn't have any bands. The A&R department had basically gone off to form Domino Records and the other guy had gone creation. Um, so I used to go down to the enemy and the Melody Maker of a Tuesday with the company credit card, got to know the journos they were very powerful at the time a little bit later on Kerrang and other metal papers because we got some American bands and it was just basically a bet that the whole Britpop thing was happening Camden Town was the center of the universe um and I'd never written a song before I played drums when I was a kid but I hadn't written a song before and basically after a few Guinnesses um playing pool with the Melody Maker art department Tony Judge and a guy called Paul Mathera who a lot of your uh, your listener will recognise if they read the Melody Maker. He was the first guy to interview Oasis. Da, 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 da. They bet me a hundred quid. I bet them a hundred quid. I can't remember that I couldn't get a record deal within a year. And that that was on the Tuesday. On the Thursday, by the by which time we'd all sobered up, I was doing my club. I was I used to do, DJ at a club upstairs at the garage in North London called Uncle Bob's Wedding Reception, which was a bit of a kind of do for people who worked for want of a better word, in the music industry. It was a bit of a kind of like get-together. It was a really boozy get-together with me playing records that I'd found in charity shops. It was a good night out. And Sophie came up to the booth and said, are you Billy? And I didn't know who she was. Or I said, yeah. I said, yeah. She said, is Paul Mather here? And I said, no, he isn't. He said, well, can you give him this tape? Someone he knows is looking to form a band. And I, I still didn't work out, work out what she was talking about. And he bumped, he'd bumped into her the day before, the Wednesday, at a, um, a photo exhibition at the Roundhouse for, it was either creation thing or an Oasis thing, I can't remember. I think it was an Oasis thing. And they got to talking. She'd, she'd climbed in through the window with her mates from sixth form. As you do. And um, and said, oh, and they got to talking. So, hey, and he'd said to her something along the lines of, hey, you're cool. Have you ever thought about being in a band? My friend's forming a band. So, And she had a tape, which I've still got, of her singing some Oasis songs. And I played it in the car on the way back. And I thought, well, she looked great. And she's got a really distinctive, you know, the, you know, the voice now, voice. Yeah. And but I didn't know who her mother was or anything. And um, we so, all yeah, know so who I her thought, mother was. Come on, you, you are of an age where you know who her mother was. Yeah, but I, I knew who. I didn't know that she was. Um, but obviously, I knew who her mother was when she told me who her mother was. Yeah. But I didn't. She didn't. But of course, Janet Ellis, very much after my time. I'm, I'm, I'm Leslie. I'm Noakes Judd Herbs. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that, so I nicked some musicians from 
the bands that were on fire did one demo tape which Gary Crowley played paid for when he was an A&R man at Warner's mm, anybody remember anything no he didn't sign anything he just sat in an office for two days a week and and it took seven months and seven gigs and it was extraordinary because there was that the dear old um um, pub in Camden that we played on the seventh gig, by which time everybody had offered, offered us a deal. And I don't think that would happen now. You wouldn't, someone wouldn't turn up and say, we will lend you £250,000. And I signed a big um, publishing deal as well. I, sp I, I split the publishing with the band and obviously I split the record deal with Sophie and it bought my house, you know, the house I'm sitting in now. And I, I walked... I walked down to the um, when when we got the deal and the money was in the bank. I walked down to my to the Cheltenham and Gloucester Building Society and wrote them out a check, bang. And that was kind of it was just a, it was an absolute dream to be mortgage free. But then then as soon as we signed, of course, because Sophie famously was doing her A levels and I just did all the meetings and an absolute whale of the time meeting all these record companies. As soon as we signed, of course, then other people started to get involved producers started to get involved but we ended up using the demos for the album which is coming out again on last night from glasgow records home of bis and the skids and loads of really cool indie bands on may the 27th yes a deluxe edition of the audience's only well, album Us, the there's side, already a deluxe out edition again. but everybody it got it was really complicated doing the record and it was a massive flop because i remember i bought the there's a, there was a double cd i bought it yeah well you were one of the few people that did <laughs> i, I mean it, char it. it charted it it charted at 12, the album, and then went just straight back out again. But that was on four and a half thousand sales. I think partly it was because, partly because of Sophie, well, obviously not anything to do with me, but because, partly because of Sophie and the Melody Maker really got on board with it really mm. quickly. They put us on the cover um, before we'd signed a record deal. That was the first week that Mars Sutherland took over. So she was, and we said, no, we don't want to do a cover story. We want to save that. But they took a photograph of us playing live and put her on the cover. So things happened really quickly. When we signed to Mercury, their big act, the, the our A&R guy's big act, was the kind of second coming of Texas, mm. when they kind of like went all Motown, you know, Black Eyed Boy and that. Mm. So everything that Texas were offered that they couldn't do, the TV plug and the radio plug, well, we've got the new Texas featuring uh, Blue Peter daughter. So we were so we were doing all these things. We did the Ricky Gervais show on XFM. We did... Um, uh, thank uh, TFI Friday. We did Richard and Judy. As you do. So we were kind of looked. So we kind of looked a little bit more famous than yeah. we were. And I think if I'd have stuck with it rather than just sort of like stropping off when the when it all got to you know when all the power was taken away from my hands, got the album out and then just quit. Yeah. If we'd have stuck with it, perhaps it would have you know there would have been a second album. The, the band were given the advance. Well, let's talk um, about that. But, but I really I've... did think that that was the end of it. Well, let's talk about that because uh, in in a minute because. Um... You are you're co-hosting tonight, so we're going to play uh, uh, some of the songs that you've chosen. And the first one we're going to choose to, today is uh, Monday Morning 519 by Rialto. I'll play it, and then uh, maybe you can just give us a little bit of uh, heads, up, heads up as to why you chose it. Okay, so this, it. this is Monday Morning by Rialto. Online and on your smart speaker. Playing all the best songs. At eight o'clock we said goodbye That's when I left her house for mine She said that she'd be staying in Well, she had to be 
knows what then what a tune now there's plenty of reasons why i would play that song but why did you pick it billy <laughs> um there was a lot of groups like that wasn't there that were kind of trying to do that cinematic thing that burt Bacharach thing phil Spector thing but they were a bit of a cut above i think and i think that is a tremendous record they were our support band on one of our tours i remember that there was them and there was a group that we toured with called hillman minx who's malcolm doherty um a stayed in touch he, he he's one of them uh, go-kart Mozart Malcolm he does a lot of music for dear old Lawrence and, and, and if Lawrence from felt releases anything I buy it because I don't want him to starve so it's nice that Malcolm is kind of saving uh, Lawrence from penury but um, when we toured with them I uh, it was the first again not being a musician it was the first time because the audience were mates and mates of mates it was the first time I'd really come across musicians when we toured with Rialto because they were a right bunch of prigs p-r-i-g-s they used to do vocal warm-ups. Now two vocal warm me, 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 A, E, I, O, yeah. And I thought, what the f but of course they were right to do so. And uh, and they weren't a bunch of at all. No, they were quite they had two drummers, which for a support band was a daft idea. And our crew wouldn't let them 
have both drum, drums on. So, so they had to take it in turns. And it was, again, it was that first thing I remember of kind of control being taken away from me. Look, well, they can have both kits on stage. You know, the, the venues were big enough. Mm. And their keyboard player was the guy that I liked, Toby. He was a great guy, really good player. And then about, it was about a little while ago, a few weeks ago, um, a friend of mine, really good, really, really old friend of mine, Johnny Wilkes said, here, you remember Toby? Yeah, your mate Toby. Yeah, it was, it was in Rialto. Oh, it was in Rialto, isn't it? I'd forgotten about that. He's only gone and replaced Dave Greenfield in The Stranglers. Oh, wow. So Toby is now, Toby is, and then two weeks after that, my wife comes home from her, I won't say where she works or what Toby does, but my wife is the head of HR for an organisation, came back um, home and said, oh, I'm really annoyed we're going to lose Toby because he's joined some famous punk group. Right, and again, and it took me a couple of days, and I went, he's not in the Stranglers, is he? So Toby has worked with my wife for eight years, so it was extraordinary. He sort of came back into my life. So I phoned him up, because um, we're friends on, we became friends on Facebook then, that couple of days, phoned him up. So, yeah, extraordinary that uh, Toby kept coming. In a, I meant just, Dave, imagine that. Imagine being Dave Greenfield in the Stranglers. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to... Just if you're going to depth for anybody, you know, not only a unique sound, just incredible, really voracious fans all through Europe, mm. especially because they're bigger in Europe than they are here, especially the later stuff, the kind of post, the epic stuff, mm. the kind of post 80s stuff. Imagine being Dave Greenfield in this thing. And so I found it and I said, how are you going to do it? He said, I'm absolutely breaking it. Yeah. But then uh, a few a few weeks later, people started getting in touch with him, offering him free gear, uh, synthesizer manufacturers. And uh, he seems to have he seems to have pulled it off, and as a result, because they, they they had to get through these gigs that they cancelled because of COVID, and then of course Dave died. Um, they had to speak to his wife. It all had to be done really properly. So God, Toby is as packed in his job, and is now in the Strangler. But it's a great. I think that is a great record. It's a great song. It's got a great plot. It had a great, really expensive video. And I think the era of which we're talking, if we if we're talking kind of. What are we talking Britpop? What would you say era-wise? Well, that I mean, we could do a whole show on that. But I, but let's let's say Britpop started with Pop Scene by Blur. All right. Okay. So and let's say the nineties. Let's basically. say it end, let's say it ended. Uh, no coincidence with the death of Diana. All right. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a fair point. There was a lot of groups at that period that because there was a lot. Of, we we were you know the audience was signed as a result of this. I mean, obviously ninety. Two percent of it was because of Sophie, but a lot of groups were signed by major record companies because a lot of them were based in London, and you could quite easily go out and see people mm. play. There's a there's a crime novel written about it, isn't there? Kill Your Friends, which is about yeah. a man, our man, yeah. which the audience which the audience mentioned in, and yeah. it was a little bit like that. It was just really easy to go and talent scout yeah. because at some point they would either people would either play King Tut's or Band on the Wall or you know or in Camden Town, so. Rialto were one of those groups that kind of got lost in it a little bit. There was a lot of groups like that that yeah. had one song. Yeah. Well, they uh, now the first time I saw you guys, I think was on a. I saw you live on a. a was it the Brat mm. tour, Enemy Brat tour? And I think it was with the Stereophonics. Would that be right? Oh yeah. No, we did. I'd forgotten about. Oh, miss me. I'd forgotten about that. Again, we we were we lucked out with that because Ultrasound was supposed to be on that tour mm. and they and tiny and i think two of them got really ill mm. and they had to um had to be looked after by sandy shaw so so they were kind of because yeah, they were kind of like they had kind of psychiatric problems they had all sorts of problems ultrasound so we were kind of like <laughs> for some bizarre reason again we weren't famous enough 
but the when they'd originally booked the tour um whoever was on that tour it was the um the warm jets asian dub foundation it was actually because it was a really eclectic one of the greatest bands those and the stereophonics but the stereophonics when they were booked on they weren't they'd broken by the time the gig the gigs happened they were massively famous yeah. and the idea behind the brat bus is that you there wasn't a headliner yeah so the stereophonics to, to their absolute credit rather than blow it out said okay we've agreed to do it and it was agreed that they'd be the headliner and the rest of us would kind of swap around with um we were on a we were on a fancy tour bus on the way to the first gig or the night before the first gig and we had um Radio One Newsbeat on, and uh, Asian the guys from Asian Dub Foundation were on. They're going, yeah, we're playing something with some stupid indie bands, you know, one of which is Mum used to be on the telly. It's going to be awful. <laughs> and of course, they didn't realise that we'd all be sharing the same dressing room. And I had a dance set with me and a bunch of singles. That was our kind of backstage thing. So I kind of <laughs> we kind of walked in, and there they all were. All right. Oh no. And so I put the I put the dance set down, plugged it in, got the records, and of course we were friends from that day to this oh, um well, steve, gonna... partic- steve particularly yeah well, i think they were they're doing something they're coming back aren't they asian dub foundation i thought i thought they were releasing some stuff but no they're still they're still they're still going same lineup they did a record mm. during lockdown they made a record with Stuart lee didn't they that they were trying to get to number one on the itunes chart there yeah. was a big hit where Stuart lee did the where they sampled some of Stuart lee's um stand up yeah. <clears throat> excuse me so no still going strong fantastic i saw them a few years ago about three or four years ago at an event at, in uh, that place in East London, Bethnal Green, can't remember, it's Rich Mix. Mm. And they were the headline act of a big sort of like diaspora night yeah. um, that started at five o'clock, Philosophy Football. And they were just awesome. They're an awesome band. And of course they were... <laughs> Yeah, but they were they were they were expecting us to be a bunch of kind of soppy indie kids, but we we really weren't because you know Sophie is very much not a soppy indie yeah. kid at all. Well, we're going to talk about Sophie in, in a bit, um, but uh, I'm not going to play any Asian Dub Foundation because our listeners wouldn't allow for that. But I will play. Yeah, I should have picked. I should have. I should have. Yeah, I should have picked some Asian. Yeah, some well, Asian. I think I think I would have. It wouldn't have got through the sieve, I'm afraid. But too late now. Too late. We're going to play some Stereophonics. Here's a thousand trees. Shopping in my hands when I'm overhearing elder ladies as the rumors start to fly. Hear them in the schoolyard, in the scrapyard, in the chip shop, in the phone box, in the pool hall, at the shoe stall. Every corner turned around. Starting with a schoolgirl who was running, running home to her mom and dad. Told them she was playing in the change room of the lock on Fourth of Saturday. Said, Tell us again. She told him again. Tell us the truth. He found it hard to believe because he thought I was Steve. Train me, thought of a job as a father of three. Only takes one tree to make a thousand matches. Only takes one match to burn a thousand trees. Thousand trees. Seen in the classroom of a swimming pool with a matchstick man and man. At the scouts hall, at the football, where the wise we trust the pair they all Stepping the ground, picture colors dust in the barn, the lunch takes one tree. To make a thousand matches, only takes one match. To burn a thousand trees, thousand trees. 
together's dust in the bundle and it takes one tree To make a thousand matches only takes one match To burn a thousand trees Thousand trees Thousand trees Thousand trees Thousand Trees by Stereophonics, and we have in the studio Billy Reeves from the audience. Now, Billy, we've had a question. It's from one of our listeners called Majid, and he says... I'm very, Hello, Majid. He said, I'm looking forward to the Billy Reeves interview. Please pass on my compliments for the brilliant and underrated audience debut album. It's a shame... <laughs> it's, he says, it's a shame it didn't come out when Britpop was at its peak a couple of years earlier. Then it may have got more attention and the praise it deserves. Uh, and he says, uh, there's so much depth and texture to each track. But his question, because he does have a question, is how did Mike Hedges end up in the producer's chair? Was it something oh. you decided on or was it the record company's idea? Either, oh. He says, either way, the results still sound great after all these years. My compliments to all involved. And he said, P.S. Mike Hedges didn't produce all the tracks, but he's worked with such a variety of acts. I was interested to know what he brought to the table slash mixing desk. Nothing at all. <laughs> Nothing whatsoever. I was really excited to meet Mike Hedges because he produced, you know, some of my favourite records. He, he kind of ruined the Undertones fourth album, but he'd done some great, amazing other stuff. Um, associates, um, just fantastic. And it, I think it was because the, we, we couldn't really play. That A lot of that was the problem. Uh, Nigel, our keyboard player, was a session guy, and Hatch, our drummer, was in the Sundays. But me, Dean, and Sophie and Karen were just, we were so green. So the record company were, they were starting to get a little bit agitato that we couldn't recreate the demos. And we spent a lot on that, that album. It was, you know, our final, our final bill, our final debt with Universal, uh, as they became Polygram Universal, was £666,668. Oh. If someone had spent two quid left. And of course, your, your Mike Hedges and Dave Bascoms and all those people, they were paid an absolute fortune for mixing and trying to get these things done without really adding anything. I guess we thought producers were going to go, hey, you do this. Hey, man, here's a vibe. Hey, here, we've, built a, we've built a model railway track around the studio. But it was just, they just pointed the mics at us and it was a complete and utter waste of time. I've got a lot of respect for Mike, obviously. See, they were the, the, the days we spent with Mike in France was in the middle of the Mannix. The Mannix were had just cleared off to do some dates, but they were in the middle of that. Oh, which album was it? It was the one after the big one. Um, is, is that one? With, if you tolerate this, also, then your children will be next. Is it that one? Yeah. So it was the one. It was the one after that that they were recording. Anyway, so all the Mannix gear was 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 everywhere in this massive chateau in front. We didn't know what that earth we were doing there and we didn't use any of it there's very little of my as i've said before in the end we went back to the demos and tried to remix them tried to put the guitars in tune again it was just it recording the album was an absolute nightmare but that's what you know that's that's the way it was then but mike is a you know he's a he's a real big character he let we went to the supermarket sophie was came the day after we all went down on the train and sophie came the day afterwards because um, we went and the idea was we were going to set up all the gear and she didn't need to be there for that. And Mike took me and Karen to the local hypermarket, walked the wrong way out of the, you know, rather than back to the car park, into the fo into the forest, lost in a forest, and just left us there, just ran off. And we could hear we could hear some boar hunt, <laughs> like guns going off, and didn't know which, we completely lost our bearing. And that's what he did. 
he just thought that, that it was just, it was a complete and total and utter waste of time. I don't know what the solution would have been, but of course, what I should have been doing was enjoying all of that. But and it sounds funny now, but at the time it was it was dreadful. So yeah, so oh, don't even. But I did meet a lot of people through Mike Sally Herbert, particularly his kind of go-to string arranger, as as stayed a friend who's just recently been on the Tom Grennan album. They've done loads of things together. So he's an awesome individual, but I think he thought we were a bunch of absolute amateurs. And he was right. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Right, you are co-hosting this show, so we're moving on to another mm. uh, another song that you've chosen. This is a song mm. by Stereolab called Ping Pong. Why have you chosen that? Listen, I was too old for Britpop, really, but I was really fortunate to, because I was working at Fire from 92. It was um, for the record label Fire, who had bought the world, world Pulp. I was kind of, and, St- and Spacemen 3. I was kind of, and Teenage Fan Club. So I was kind of there and I got to know a lot of people at Creation and the people behind Too Pure. And so I saw a lot of groups and Stereo Lab were a really special group. And it was interesting that they, like the Teenage Fan Club, who maybe we'll hear from later, they kind of got subsumed into it. But as a result, it kind of, um, it gave a real fillip to their career because there was young people going to see gigs. I was 30, 32. And I was going to, then people were turning up, we were 16, you know, blow up, the club blow up was fantastic because they were playing a load of songs from the 60s and, that, you know, begat menswear. And it was actually really, I did feel quite old at a lot of those gigs. But a Stereo Lab, I felt as though I was with my people. And I think the Stereo Lab pop singles from that period, they were hit records. And of course, they did, the, they did everything DIY. They were years ahead of their time. Okay, well, we'll play some ping pong stereo lab, and then after that, we're going to move on to your. Uh, let's talk about your love of Brentford Football Club. For the love of music. i 
That was Stereo Lab Ping Pong. But don't blame me if you don't like the music this week. It is our co-host, <laughs> Billy Reeves, who is choosing the music. Some of it, anyway. And he chose that one, uh, largely because of his love of Stereolab. Billy, we've had, uh, we've had some questions in, but before we move on to those, I want to talk about Brentford Football Club. And I understand, do you, do you do some sort of commentary for them at the moment? Um, I work for BBC Radio London. All right, um, don't name drop, there's my... no need. Yeah, because yeah. I had, um, in the... Uh, in 2001, the night of the first Darkness gig, which I um, promoted, on my way back from that, I was involved in a car crash. I was in a coma, I had to learn how to walk again and, and all the rest of it. Um, but when I came, I was sort of a year housebound, but I'd already started doing stuff for BBC Radio London, um, just doing sort of like co, uh, it's coming in and, and reviewing singles and films and stuff like that because of knowing Gary Crowley before my crash. So after it, I did some, um, I got in touch with the people I knew there and, you know, is there anything I can do in oh, you know, the last golden era of the BBC where you could do that? So I started working on music programming. Then I got a job um, producing Vanessa Feltz and then I got another job and then I boarded for another job producing Robert Elms's programme. And while I was doing that, so it would have been about 13, 14 years ago, we were starting to cover Dagenham and Redbridge. Um, because BBC Essex had done them, but I was it was me going to sport, we should cover them, it's in London. So I started, so I did I did about eight or nine Daggers games, and then I thought, wouldn't it be great to do my local club, because I quite, lived quite near Brentford. And the first season I became our sort of Brentford correspondent. I'm not a commentator, I was a reporter, basically, although I have done some commentaries as well, but mainly one of the kind of people you go to, there's been a goal at Griffin Park, Billy Reeves, and it's gone to the home side. That was me. Um, and... But that season, the first season that I started covering them, Brentford had been relegated to the fourth division. They won the fourth division. And since then, they've kind of hopped up the leagues. A very tiny club owned by a local man and the fans. And as the years have gone by, with a minuscule investment compared with um, other football clubs, they've got promoted to the Premier League. And it's an extraordinary story. They got promoted last season. And of course, it was during lockdown uh, and I was covering games when the stadiums were empty. That was absolutely extraordinary with 200 people, including the players in these huge stadiums, interviewing the manager afterwards you know, with a, um, with, a, with a boom mic. It was extraordinary. So I'd covered them through this rise from the fourth division to the Premier League. They're by some considerable distance, the smallest club in terms of budget that have been promoted to the, you know, the richest league in the world, you know, where you get 168 million pounds for finishing bottom. You know, it's an extraordinary journey <clears throat> during which they managed to build a new stadium as well. And to squeeze that stadium into that little part of queue, again, with the fans helping out, the fans designed it. That was an extraordinary story. But I'm actually retiring from doing that at the end of this season because Brentford are a Premier League club. We need to have younger voices and different voices doing sport. I don't work for sport. I now do travel presenting and make a difference. So I've got other things that I need to be doing as well. So I bought a season ticket um, because I've become a, a fan. But um, I think Brentford are the club in the Premier League, if you follow football, that is everybody's second favourite club. I think it's such an extraordinary story, such an inclusive club in the, you know, the, the awful times and the awful people that own football clubs if you don't like football I think it's a story that warms the heart yeah I'm a West Ham fan so Brentford are not my, <laughs> are not my second favorite club I can assure you um having, been, <laughs> having beaten, beaten twice yes we've done them. so well in we've done so well in London derbies this season beating Everton yesterday was our northernmost victory but 
Yeah, that game at the uh, the London Stadium was extraordinary. Have you been to the London Stadium? I have. I saw um, I saw West Ham beat Manchester United there. So you can't you get feel, better than do you, that. Do you feel as though um, that the club should perhaps have stayed at the Bolin ground and perhaps West Ham fans were um, into thinking that they were going to be superhuman European uh, elite we, moving to a London Stadium for a peppercorn rent. We will um, we will be signing Messi shortly. You watch watch this space. <laughs> oh, but to be fair, I mean we're we not going to stray too far into football. But to be fair, we've done pretty well. Uh, yeah, since begrudgingly, I agree. Yeah. Great story, great story for us at, at BBC Radio London because West Ham are one of the clubs that we have full rights to yeah. because we consider them to be a you know a London club. We don't really deal very much with Chelsea and Arsenal. We don't really cover them. We're, we're more likely to do a live commentary on a late and Orient match, mm. but we do all the West Ham games. And it's really handy. Them playing in Europe, playing on a Sunday has been really good yes. for us as well. We can host games from the... But that stadium is just is ridiculous. It's not as bad as the Tottenham one. That's like a, such an vulgar enormo dome. Yeah. But my goodness me, I enjoyed... And the bubble machines, they're so little. But I did enjoy my visit to the uh, London Stadium yes. and Brentford's victory, I must admit. Uh, and and um, you have another... I don't know if this is correct, but uh, you know um, Rich out of Hardfire, is he not a Brentford fan as well? Yeah, he's Richard is a, is a proper Brentford fan. I've kind of become one. I, yeah. I, I I liked football when I was a kid, and I've become a Brentford. But Richard is proper um, died in the wool. He goes with his brother. He lives very near me. We, we breakfast together you're sometimes. Big, you're you're um, big uh, big mates with him, aren't you? Yeah, he's um, he's uh, an extraordinary nice guy. I'm so glad that they're back. You know, yeah. they kind of their hiatus took longer than they thought. I think when the kind of work dried up a little bit. They they thought, let's have some time off. The yeah. third album was a bit of a disaster. Yeah. The Greatest Hits was a complete disaster. I'm so glad they're working again. They're doing a one-off gig uh, on the 10th of October, which sold out in seven minutes. Yeah. And Richard was genuinely humbled by that because he, he had imposter syndrome, essentially, while they were doing Every gig was really intense. And I think that now's their chance to enjoy it, hopefully make a few bob off yeah. the back of it yeah. although i don't think he's short of a few bob yeah. um, because he wrote all the songs and owned all the recording but they genuinely did they got to number one with an album that him and wolsey white before they got the other three but essentially did at three o'clock in the morning after trips to the pub in wolsey's in bedroom the garage, upstairs. yeah yeah it just it was an extra without using any proper gear they, they had two eight track recorders that used Betamax videotapes and linked them together to make 16 tracks i mean they did it really was totally shonky but I remember they were going up, I think it might have been one of the awards, you know, Mercury Music or whatever. They were going up against Coldplay and they said that they found it remarkable that this album that they'd recorded for literally £200 was going up against yeah. Coldplay's second album, yeah. which must have cost yeah. a million. The money, the, money they, the money they spent on it was on the Betamax tapes. Yeah. You know, that's because that, they, cause they, were so, they were so difficult to get. Richard is, a, um, I think... It, Possibly they had, you know, the connection with football and being, you know, bees being on Soccer AM and all the rest of it, being on the Carlsberg advert, it possibly gave them an image which didn't stick. You know, they're yeah. kind of like proletarian, the ruts, the clash kind of thing. Because they're actually not like that. You know, the mm. songs are very political. Um, they've got a real dance groove to them. You know, they they like dub. They're, they're, they're dub meets the ruts, aren't yeah. they? And yeah, ruts yeah. were local to me. So I think they probably, got, you know, people who think of them as a bunch of like, well, hey, but. Conversely, that gig, that reunion gig after eight years at the um, the Forum, Kentish Town, that is going to be absolutely yeah. bouncing with yeah. people who were very young in 2004, who were at school and college, 
and are going to go and have a massive yeah. knees up. And that's, again, that's something that so many conversations I've had with Richard saying, your music is party music, mm. you know, and when you do, when you finally do another gig, get out there. And that's what a band is. A band, rock and roll was designed to get people into shacks, drinking moonshine. And that's what, that's what gigs are. They're, you know, the venue takes the booze, you take the merch or some of it, it's in Burgess, right? Yeah. And you're there, you're front of cloth entertainers. So go out there and entertain yeah. people. And I think they're finally wising up on that. But I'll give you an exclusive, go I'll on. give you a hard fight exclusive that no one outside of the organisation knows. But what they want to do is pretty obvious. I'm pretty obvious what they want to do. What they want to do is the festivals. They wanted to do the festivals this year, obviously COVID, blah, 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 blah. Um, Richard's new band, had done, he'd done this sort of slightly experimental band called uh, Offworld, who'd done some gigs with the specials and COVID kind of um, screwed that up as well. So they want to do the festivals. They want to get out and do all the festivals next summer. That's the kind of big plan to see if people are still interested. And you just want to hug him and go, Rich, people are still interested yeah. because they're such great songs, all of them. And they're going to do, and another exclusive, they're going to do quite a few new songs at this show. And there's and your third exclusive, of course, there's a whole fourth hard fire album in the can it was recorded a while ago and i've heard it and it's absolutely brilliant why don't you send me an mp3 of it why don't i send send me an mp3 now and we'll just play some now uh, no chance i've i've only heard it in the studio oh, I've okay, not, I've, because richard see richard will tinker with it if even if he, he said oh I, we really must let dave hear the record it would take me weeks and weeks and weeks to get it out of him because he goes <laughs> oh no i'll just fiddle with the i'll just fiddle with this yeah, yeah. and wolsey his producer is even worse uh, but he's the other way he's sort of like take that off take that off take that off the two of them work together so wonderfully and god bless them for putting stains on the map right now when you next have breakfast with him, tell him this story. Hard Fi hold a special place in my heart for the following reason. <clears throat> Back in the day, so in the you know in the two thousands, I used to be a semi serious runner. Used to do I used to do eight hundreds. Now in oh, an right, eight, wow, in well, a, you look you look well. Oh, That's why you look so well. well. Maybe I had a I had an easy paper round. Um, anyway, um, so um, <laughs> back in so I used to do eight hundreds. Now an eight hundred lasts two minutes just under. Oh, yeah. You've got to get your head in the right place. There's no point just rocking up to the start line and, you know, just, oh, well, you know, and, and then gun goes and then getting, you know, you've got to visualize it. You've got to visualize what you're going to do in the first 200. You've got to visualize coming around to the bell and you've got to, and then you've got to visualize the kick. So every season I would pick a song and for that season, that would be the song that I would use to visualize my race before I went and did the race. And uh, one year it what was song? well, one year what it was song? Harley Simon. It was nobody does it better, right. and that was my best year. Right. <laughs> and then, and then around two thousand five, two thousand six, there was something off the Hard Fire debut album. Would you like to guess which song? Uh, hard to beat, surely. The... Well, you would think hard to beat, but I didn't. I went better, do better. Now I'm going to play oh, it now. Underrated, yeah. That really, underrated really great song. song. Yeah, Here it man. is, better do better by Hard Fire. This was my type yeah. up song.
Listening to the Britpop Show, sponsored by Creation Day Festival, playing the best and the rest of Britpop. Little reminder there that you are indeed listening to the Britpop Show because we're playing something that was way past Britpop. That was Better Do Better by Hardfire. <laughs> and the reason for that is because we have Billy Reeves from the audience in the studio joining us today and giving us all sorts of stories about the sort of 98 era and post Britpop and, and around that time and also his time and his, his experiences with Rich from Half-Five, please make sure you tell him about that story. About, about no, I will we're, 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 We've kind of hooked you two guys up on Twitter, and he will do it at some point. He's yeah. just shy. It's typical, isn't it? I come on here to punt my album out, and we're talking about flipping Archer. Well, it's interesting you should say that, because the next song we're about to play is indeed Boutique in My Backyard. Before we do that... Hey, I'm a professional, you know. Just tell us. Just tell us all about it. There's the audience album, as mentioned, is coming out on last night from Glasgow as a deluxe special edition. And they're extraordinary, it's an extraordinary label. It's one of these subscription labels that they have these days. 
So they don't they know exactly how many they're going to sell and who to, and it's brilliantly curated. They've got new bands and they've got um, old bands, and and we're on. It's just some of my favourite groups: Bis, Bluebells, the Skids, mainly Scottish groups, obviously, because they're as the name of the label suggests. And this, they were they got the um, rights to the original album and the extra tracks that came with the original album. That was done after I left, and they're just kind of piano versions of stuff that's already on the album. So I got back in touch with them and I said, oh, no, if there's going to be a fourth side, why not put some B-sides and, and rarities on? Because we did loads of B-sides because I always dreamt of there being a you know, fabulous B-sides album with all of our covers and experimental stuff. And, and this song um, I've, uh, I've kind of turned into our new single. Um, so there's a kind of limited edition Zoe Trope 45 of it. Um, Gideon Cole will be playing it on BBC um, um, on Six Music, bless him, as an exclusive in the next couple of days. And it was written well, not by that exclusive because we've got it first. I don't think you, this is, but I was going to say this is actually the first play of it on the radio uh, for uh, for you on the Britpop show, yeah, Dave. Yeah. And uh, it was written by a guy called Davy Woodward, who was in the Brilliant Corners, who was signed to Fire, and it was for his group, the Experimental Pop Band, who were from Bristol. And it's a great song. It's one of our B sides. Um, but I think it's, it's oh God, I'm going to sound like a real pop star here. It's my favourite track on the album because I didn't write it. But yeah, it's a jolly little pop song about being happy in your own space, uh, very much like the recent uh, song that came second in the Eurovision Song Contest. But it also lyrically kind of reflects our recent um, experiences of lockdown. I think. Well, let's hear it. Boutique in my backyard by the audience. And then you can plug the LP a bit more. Here we go. It's coming out on May the 27th, Dave, uh, the audience album, The Grand Folie.
Now, Billy emailed that over to me just at the start of the show, so that is the first time I've heard it. That's a tune, Billy. Yeah, man. Well, I, also, um, I think it's important at this stage to point out how brilliant Sophie is, how brilliant she was then. She was 17, um, 17, 18, having just done her A-levels. And one of the myriad of reasons as to why she is essentially, I think, a household name, and probably, obviously not, the biggest seller of records of the Britpop era, um, but certainly its biggest star because she's done Strictly and she's done the Kitchen Disco and she's done the Masked Singer. I mean, she's you know she's done the One Show. She's she's very very well known, Sophie. And one of her myriad of talents, uh, which I did appreciate at the time, but appreciate even more now, is the fact that she could just come in, learn something really quickly, and nail it. And if you are your kind of Kylies and your Sophies, where you have to work. Uh, with writers or you have to write your own songs which she does a lot of well a, a lot of as well of course and put out your own records is that you have to be professional and charming at all times and if anybody I'm fortunate to know her fortunate to call her a friend she came to my 50th birthday party but the first time I'm actually going to see her just the two of us I think I can't ever remember being just the two of us is when this record comes out and I'll go um, she's invited me around and I'll go around so we'll actually be talking about the band but for the first time in 25 years but the thing that i really appreciated about her um at the time and appreciate more is just how talented she is that she can just nail stuff and so remind us uh when is this album out again it's coming out at the end of the month um may the 27th hopefully um impressing problem blue vinyl yada yada it's coming out on last night from glasgow which is a terrific label worth checking out mm -hmm. it's coming out on their reissue arm last night from glasgow see what they did there um, and as a deluxe edition, and I, I'm just really surprised. Again, I would say probably a lot of it is to do with Sophie, but I'm really surprised that anybody would be interested in my grand folly. And um, yeah, it's quite a difficult listen. Very interesting lyrics. I've no idea what I'm going on about in half of them because I got amnesia after the accident. So if anybody would like to explain the lyrics to me, I'd be grateful. Well, um, unfortunately, that is our time up. Um, so we just uh, remind the listeners that uh, you've promised us rich from hard fire. No doubt you've pro I I've thrown we'll out do. I've thrown out you've promised us that Sophie yeah. as well. So we'll just you know. Uh, I'm yeah, Sophie might up. be a bit. Sophie might be a bit trickier, but she may do it. She'll do. You, you know, know. she just. You never know. Yeah, you just you need to probably need to get in touch with a manager. But if you, she does her own socials. I think so. If you hit her up, hit her up on Insta. I'll try. I'll, I'll give that a go. In the meantime, 
you can let her know that we play some super furry animals or just for you. Now, Billy, thank you. You've been an absolute pleasure to have on the show. Good luck with the album and speak and hopefully stay in touch. See you soon. Cheers, Dave. Up the bees. Nice one. Thanks. <laughs>